0: What a wonderful prayer. Here at Grace, we're uh, working on recalling our grace basics together. And so this month, we we got kind of a five-week month, but we're going to be working through this first question here, which is, what is God's character? And the answer is, He is p- perfect and loving. And we know this is true because of what 1 John 4, 8 says. Let's read it together. Anyone... Who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Wonderful. Well, friends, uh, with your parents' permission, children up through third grade, you may be dismissed to junior worship. For the rest of us, let's take a moment and let's prepare our hearts for God's word. Let's begin with prayer. Oh, Father, may words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for Jesus' sake, amen. Well, friends, welcome. If you're joining us today for the first time, we're working through the book I almost said the gospel of, but probably would be just as fair. It's the gospel of Ruth in a sense. Um, we're working through the book of Ruth, and we're looking now at chapter 3. And Chapter 3 is an interesting chapter. I mean, all these chapters are interesting, but chapter 3 helps us understand that love can be a strange thing. And sometimes it makes you do strange things. And to modern ears, this part of the story of Ruth can seem very strange. Even ancient listeners, truthfully, would squirm a bit on this part of the story. But the main idea that we've got today is that true love sacrificially seeks the good of others. True love sacrificially seeks the good of others. We've been tracing the covenant faithfulness of God in this book. And we see here the covenant faithfulness of God is revealed in our lives when we set aside our personal priorities to seek another person's well-being. So let's start. Let's look through. And by the way, don't worry, we're not going to get rid of the public reading of scripture. It's just that We're working through the whole text together, and so we've just taken a pause while we're in Ruth. We'll we'll hear the text read again once we're into 1 Peter. But let's start in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you have your scriptures, I encourage you to follow along. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? This first phrase, should I not seek rest for you, this sense of to find rest in Naomi's sense means to find security, permanence, peace, belonging, having a husband. Put it, more modern terms would say, honey, you need a man. <laughs> but don't miss Naomi's concern. We, we, can, we can sort of chuckle at it, but Naomi's concern is not actually primarily interested in her own welfare. She's not a meddling mother-in-law, as it were. She's primarily concerned that Ruth have good well-being. Notice she says, not, should we not seek rest for the both of us? After all, they are both in this boat together. They both need food. They both need family. But she doesn't say that. She specifically says, should I not seek rest for you so that it may be well with you Naomi's primary concern is Ruth so the second word this word well is associated with divine blessing so Jeremiah 7:23 God will say obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Furthermore, this same word connotes a full and happy family. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 3, one of the blessings that was associated with the old covenant, God says, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, referring to his statutes and his laws, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your father's has promised you. So one of the signs of things going well with you is that you would multiply, that your family would increase, that God's blessing would be seen on you. So Naomi, when she uses these words, when she says to Ruth, I want to find rest for you. I want it to go well for you. She means I want to see God's covenant blessedness, God's covenant faithfulness come alive in your life. What a wonderful mother-in-law. Naomi wants to secure the spiritual and physical good of her daughter-in-law. Now, she sees an opportunity in Boaz's kindness, which we looked at last week. And so she trusts that this circumstance is from God's hand. And with that, she proposes a cunning plan. Second verse. Is not Boaz our relative? With whose young woman you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So notice how first she lets him know that it's his our relative. She uses a word that might even go so far as to say our close relative. She is reminding Ruth of Boaz's significance, which we learned last week, is that Boaz is a potential redeemer. He has the opportunity to save their family. Now, winnowing. Well, that's the time when you would take the wheat that you've gathered in and you'd toss it in the air to separate the parts out. It's something you did in the evening when the cool breezes would blow away the chaff just far enough, but not too far. The reason she brings this up is because it means that Boaz is likely to be alone, which sets up the next stage of Naomi's fairly risky plan. Verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So she starts by saying, Ruth, get cleaned up, i.e., wash, anoint, get a shower, put on some perfume. Go looking your best. There's context where even this expression for cloak could sometimes even mean a marriage gown. So like, look nice. Look nice, smell nice, go looking your best. But there's another sense to this. This is the same idea that uh, happens when David, for instance, after he's been mourning his son, puts away his mourning. He anointed his head, he dressed himself, he washed, and he came forth. So There's another implication here that Naomi is recommending to Ruth. She says, Ruth, put behind you any sense of mourning over the loss of your homeland, the loss of your husband, the loss of your family, and instead, instead of being withdrawn from society and saying, I'm in mourning, my husband is dead, instead say, I'm ready to reenter society. I'm ready to be eligible for marriage. She's then to come to him not after he's drunk, but after he's had a good meal. That nice, warm, satisfied feeling after a long day's work and a good meal. But still, she mustn't reveal herself until verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, the language of this verse is purposefully ambiguous. It's even suggestively sensual. Ancient listeners would be blushing right now and covering their children's ears. Because the words uncover, feet, and lie down are all charged with intimate imagery. They're loaded terms in Hebrew. So first she says, observe the place where he lies. Meaning, do not do what I am about to tell you to do to the wrong man. Do not do this to the wrong guy. Then she says, uncover his feet. Uh, there's lots of argument over what this means. I think it probably means to uncover Boaz's legs to the night air to wake him up. And then she is to lie close. wait such a plan if she follows it would make it clear absolutely clear that ruth desires boaz that's a risky plan it's even a dangerous plan depending on how boaz responds remember she is the most vulnerable class of society she is a foreigner she is a gentile she is a woman she has no rights or privileges within this community Depending on how Boaz responds, at least Ruth could get scolded. She might be sent away. Worst case, she might be taken advantage of. But, verse 5, she replied, All that you say, I will do. Ruth hears this and gives a sacrificial and loving commitment to Naomi. It becomes evident in these five short Hebrew words she just says, I'm in. Verse 6, So, She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And at this point, our Hebrew readers and we, our hearts, are pounding. What's going to happen? She's over in the corner. She's hidden away. He doesn't see her, and she's waiting for just the right moment. She's waiting for the light to go down, for him to lie down. What's going to happen? Verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry... He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Can you hear her heart beating? Everything in her life hangs on what happens next. Everything. Her whole reputation is staked on the next moment. Her family's future hangs on this moment. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Boaz is startled awake. The text, behold, a woman this is not the way things were when I went down. One time I took a short nap on the couch and I woke to find my Kelly just inches from my face, just like staring at you. It's like, oh, hello. You know, behold, a Kelly. Um, So then verse nine, the first part, he says, who are you? Now, you should note several things. First, the absence of the usual My daughter, which is how he has always addressed Ruth up to this point, tells us that in the darkness and in his startled surprise, he does not recognize Ruth yet. But you remember how week after week we notice that this is one of the central questions of the book of Ruth? This one keeps coming up. Who are you? Whose are you? And here he asks, who are you? And you remember how Ruth is answered differently every time, right? Earlier in chapter 2, verse 5, we found out that Ruth was that Moabitess that came back with Naomi. In verse 6 of that same chapter, she called herself, in essence, his slave. She's the lowest of the low. But what will she say now? Who is Ruth? second part of verse 9, she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. First note, I am Ruth. By giving her name, she has entrusted herself to Boaz's integrity. In the ancient world, to know someone's name was to be able to exercise a degree of power over them. It meant that you could bless them or that you could curse them. There's immense significance in taking up another person's name. It's, it's, uh, you can trace it all the way back to Adam naming all the creatures. It exercises his authority, his place over them. So giving your name to someone was an intimate disclosure. But secondly, and this the English completely obscures for you, unfortunately. You'd have to have your strongs for this one. Your servant here is different. It's not the same term she used before when she called herself, in effect, his slave. Instead, this means maidservant. In short, you remember when Boaz invited her up to the table? Basically said, here, come eat with me, your family. She's taken him up on it. She said, all right, I'm not a slave anymore. I'm not a foreigner. I'm not outside your maidservant. I'm an eligible maiden. And most significant of all is what she does next. Because after all, as you remember, Naomi's plan stopped right here. At the very moment we expect Boaz to instruct Ruth on what Ruth should do, Ruth changes the plan. And instead, she bravely and she sacrificially departs from Naomi's script. The last part of verse 9, she gives him a command. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this phrase, spread your wings, is almost certainly a reference to Boaz's prayer and blessing over Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12. So if you remember, back in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Ruth's phrase is literally spread over me or cover me with your garment. It's, the word is kanap, and the ESV will render it wing. That's, that's fine. It's really similar to Boaz's phrase in 2.12. Under whose wings, kanapayim, you have sought refuge. Now, Ruth's expression cover me with your garment or cover me with your wing, means, especially in Arab cultures, marry me. It means marry me. And traditionally, in Arab weddings, a man, sometimes to show that he was taking this particular person into his household and under his protection, that he was going to provide for her as long as he lived, he would literally spread his cloak over her. She says, do that, marry me. And in essence, Ruth is asking Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. She says, cover me. You know, like you asked God to cover me. So that Boaz's covering of Ruth in marriage would be the outworking, the expression of God covering Ruth and Naomi with protection and provision." What is perhaps most significant is that by boldly asking for Boaz to marry her, by stepping way outside cultural etiquette, and furthermore outside of Naomi's plan, Ruth reveals that fundamentally she, like Naomi, is not chiefly concerned with her own well-being. She is not aiming at her own happiness. She's aiming at Naomi's. Just as Naomi said... I want to provide for you. Wouldn't it be right that I provide rest for you? Ruth now doesn't just say, marry me. She goes beyond. Look again at verse 9. She said, spread your wings over your Redeemer. Marry me. Why? For you are a Redeemer. And when she says, for you are a Redeemer, Naomi's plan was chiefly to obtain a husband. It was to provide rest and well-being for Ruth. That was Naomi's heart all along. This isn't some new idea Naomi had. Remember in chapter 1, 8 through 9 and and 11 through 13, when Naomi is talking with her daughters-in-law, she urges them to go back to the household of of their father. She says, go back. Find a husband. Don't end up like me. She wants what's best for them. This isn't a new idea. She wants Ruth taken care of. But by asking Boaz to redeem her and not just marry her, Ruth subordinated her happiness to the good of her family. That's an idea that in our American context we think of as kind of foreign. It's a little strange. We almost think it's even wrong. In fact, most Disney movies that I can find tell you to do the opposite, right? So you should always subordinate what your family wants for what you want. What you want is what really matters. But in... The biblical culture, it is quite the opposite. You to be looking out for the good of others, and in this case, the family. She sought Boaz, not only, perhaps not even chiefly, because she wanted to marry him, although it's obvious that she does, but because marrying him could save Naomi's family. And at this moment, having broken all etiquette, what's Boaz going to do? Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And that You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And we all... Well, maybe some of us, but we all breathe a sigh of relief at Boaz's endearing response, daughter. Oh, thank goodness. And we note that Boaz discerns the hand of God's providence in this courageous and sacrificial request. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord. So Boaz isn't missing anything here. This is the hand of God at work in this situation. Then he praises Ruth's faithful and loyal love for Naomi when he says, this last kindness is greater then the first. Well, what, what's the first kindness that he's referring to? He means how she willingly left her homeland. How she willingly left behind <coughs> her family out of kindness for Naomi. That's the first act of kindness. And now he says, this act, and this is partly why I really think Ruth is subordinating her desires to the greater good of the family... He says, This act by seeking the redemption of Naomi's household at the cost of your own marriage, that's a profound kindness. You're restoring to one of the families of Israel the tangible hope of a coming Redeemer. You want to see the promise of the Messiah worked out in the lives of those around you. He then points out, You have not gone after young men, whether poor, we rich. And what he means is, is you could have married for love. Remember earlier on, I mean, when he shows up at the field, he's like, who's that woman? You know, you could have married for love. <coughs> you could have married for your own advantage. But you chose neither. You chose to marry out of Hesed for the sake of redemption. Ruth set aside her own preferences for the good of others and becomes a living picture of God's chesed, even of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians 2? You could read the broader section, but just verses 5 through 7, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who pardon me, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ has access to all the eternal wealth, riches, privilege, and honor of the Father. No one made him lay down his life, he tells us. He, he chose to. He subordinated, as it were, what we would think of as his natural desires to seek the good of his people. Let's follow along with what Boaz says, verse 11. He says, and now, my daughter, do not fear. Oh, what a wonderful phrase. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know, you are a worthy woman. Wow. Oh. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 1, where we got that wonderful, glowing description of Boaz as a worthy man? And we said that meant he was, he was strong, he had resources, he was rich, he was wise, he was powerful. Exact same phrase <coughs> applied to Ruth. Boaz applies an equivalent term to Ruth. Now, any of you know where this term works out. Proverbs 31. Now, some of you have probably been to whole conferences on Proverbs 31. But Ruth brings the Proverbs 31 woman, that most excellent wife, to life. You want to see hands and feet on, on what it means? Look at Ruth. Boaz is willing to risk his standing among God's people. Mary, a Moabite. Because he sees beyond Ruth's foreign ethnic background to her righteous character. He sees that he is Aisha Chayil. She is a worthy woman. He goes on. Verse 12, he says, Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So this next word here, nearer, in the line of succession, Boaz says he's second to someone else. In other words, this is not a sure thing yet, Hun. This inclusion points out Boaz's integrity and his humility. Notice that he's not willing to sidestep the law for his own advantage. He wants to marry Ruth. He wants to do all that she has asked. It is his desire to do precisely that. But just because he wants it doesn't mean he's going to sidestep the law. He's not going to break God's Torah in order to get what he wants. In fact, this probably explains why Boaz did not offer to redeem Naomi earlier. Because he knew. There was someone else who had greater right and standing. And furthermore, if their marriage does come by the book, as it were, then this means that Ruth and her family will not face future legal scrutiny. If he does everything by the book, nobody's going to be coming and showing up later, being like, yeah, but Ruth is, after all, a Moabite. So I don't think your heirs are actually legitimate. But finally, what Boaz does is he rests the ultimate outcome in the providence of God. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz will all play their part. They've all done what they know to do, but God alone can overcome this final obstacle. So then he says in verse 13, he says, Remain tonight and in the morning if he, that's this nearer redeemer, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, Boaz here, hidden inside of these words, shows us more of his integrity and more of his nobility. The first thing is that he instructs her to stay the night. But he uses a different word than what we might be accustomed to. The word remain is to lodge. And it deliberately avoids the earlier romantic and sensual connotations and signals. In essence, it's for our great relief and our joy that, um, as as one of the commentators, Hubbard, says, he says, after having been thrown together in the crucible of temptation, they proved themselves righteous by placing integrity above passion. So he says, lodge for the night. He's specifically saying, we're going to keep it clean. But he also echoes Ruth's first promise to Naomi. In chapter 1, verse 16 Ruth said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And he says, lodge with me. He's providing her sanctuary. He says, stay here. Middle of the night is no time of night for a young maiden to be wandering around in the middle of the era of the judges. The second thing is he promises, should the closer relative decline... He promises to do more than marry. He says, I will redeem. That means I will buy back Naomi's property, and I will raise up an heir, and I will give it all back to him. I will restore the house of Naomi and Elimelech. So, verse 14 says, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In verse 15, he says, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Uh, Measures is kind of an ambiguous statement. We're guessing it's probably close to 75 pounds of barley. As we said, Ruth did CrossFit. Uh, This has two purposes. See, on the one hand, it provides her a suitable excuse. What were you doing last night at a threshing floor? I was winnowing a lot of barley, 75 pounds worth. She was working overtime, perhaps. But it also serves, and probably more importantly and more certainly, serves as a guarantee. It's a down payment of his promise. He's sending her back full. So she returns to Naomi, who we can only guess has spent a sleepless, anxious, and prayerful night. Right? This mother-in-law was not just like, off you go, honey. Uh, You know, she's, everything hangs on this. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And this expression, how did you fare, I beg to differ with the translation. I mean, they get the translation right. That's what she means. She literally says, who are you? My daughter. Man, narrator just really wants us to focus on this. This is the central question of the book. Ruth, are you a Moabite? Or are you one of the chosen people of God? Are you going to live by Shamash? Are you going to remain a foreigner? Or are you going to come into the household of Israel? Are you going to become a beneficiary of the chesed of God? Are you going to come into the covenant love? Whose are you, Ruth? Is he going to do it? Is he going to marry you? 16 to 17, Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Do you see that word, empty Boaz sends Ruth back with the symbol of the fulfillment of God's gracious provision for his people. Naomi is not empty after all because Ruth is a picture of God's coming fullness and provision. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. And these two words here, you recognize them, wait, or rest. They're set in opposition to each other. Naomi breathes a sigh of relief and she says, sit tight, Ruth. Today's going to be a long and important day, because he's not going to sit tight. (laughs) I'll just see what happens. you will just have to come back next week. (laughs) Let's summarize. Let's offer some application. I want to help us by reflecting on the picture of God's love. His loving kindness, God's chesed that we see worked out in this chapter. And then I want to apply it briefly to our hearts and to our lives. So first, let's go back to chapter 3, verse 10. Boaz said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. In that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, I didn't point it out at the time. But you might recognize that this word, kindness, is chesed. God's loving, faithful, merciful kindness. A word that speaks about the willingness to go out of your way to work extravagant good on someone else's behalf. Boaz says, Ruth, you've shown that to me. Don't we want our lives to be marked by extravagant mercy and sacrificial love for one another? Don't you want your marriage to be marked by extravagant mercy, sacrificial love, kindness? Don't you want your friendships to be marked by this kind of extravagant and earnest desire to work for the good of someone else, even at your own cost? Wouldn't you want this to characterize your relationship with your coworkers? Don't your neighbors want to know that this one who serves the living God will sacrificially work for my good for no reason other than that they love God? Let's think of how this kind of a love is evident in Ruth 3. And the first one perhaps is obvious. Love is patient. Now, it may at first appear that love has not been patient. I mean, Ruth has been forward. Naomi has been bold. But if you let the whole context of the book come into view, then love has been very patient because Ruth and Naomi have gone through a lot together. They went through 10 years of painful tragedy. They both traveled and returned to an uncertain future in a place that at least for Ruth was strange and perhaps for Naomi had become strange. Ruth has worked for weeks, day after day, hard, gleaning for them both and at the end of the chapter she's told to wait and you might say now what does waiting have to do with love everything First Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13:1 almost all of you can quote it straight to me 13:1 and 4 and following love is patient love is kind Friends, may God grant that our relationships be marked by kind patience. A long-suffering love that overlooks offenses. That's swift to forgive. That offers kind answers to turn away wrath. A love that refuses the path of anger. A love that is not harsh. A love that is not harsh because it is patient. Patient with others and faithfully waits on God. But secondly, love is pure. This tried to swallow the whole sermon, so I will try and be succinct. The author in this story, I believe, I I could be in error, but I believe that the author here is deliberately contrasting this story and this picture of purity with another story and with the surrounding context, the impurity that is surrounding them. So, one, we're in the time of the judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Some of you remember that this is the part of the Bible where there's a story about a concubine. Like, this is a bad window of Jewish history. But there's another story that you have to go even further back to remember. In Genesis 19, the founding of the Moabites. You see, in both of these stories, two women plot how to preserve their family. But the differences could not be more pronounced. Boaz is sober, for one, and it's emphasized. And Boaz is kind. Boaz knows precisely what he is doing, and he intends to do it. Lot was terrified, went off and lived in a cave, and was drunk. Ruth asks for a righteous redemption in order to serve another's family. Lot's daughters use deception to serve themselves. Ruth, despite her background, despite growing up in a culture given to sexual immorality, despite growing up in a culture known for its its wicked practices, when she is tested, she displays her faithful character. This is is true and pure love. This is a love that lives within the boundaries that God provides and trusts God for his help. How radically different is this story of love from our day? See, almost every love story we see includes at least two people who give way to their passions and almost always outside the context of marriage. We sit in front of screens hardly even noticing the immorality because it's so ubiquitous. Sometimes perhaps we are even entertained by it. We've gotten to a place where it's not just ubiquitous, it's, oh, that's interesting. Friends, no. No, the Apostle John warns us in 1 John 2, 16, no, true Christian love is pure. Does not Christ bless the pure in heart? Are not they the ones that will see God? Love looks straight in the face of passion and chooses integrity and honor before God above everything else. Friends, we should be vigilant, especially in the day and age in which we live, where everyone is being told openly to do what is right in your own eyes, that that is the path to to fulfillment, to delight, to satisfaction, to happiness. Let's be vigilant. As a body of faith, let's guard the purity of our love. Be vigilant over your phone. Be vigilant over your computer. Be vigilant over your relationships. Flee sexual immorality. That's any sexual activity that happens outside the bonds of marriage. Paul, when he speaks about this in Romans 12, verse 9, says, let love be genuine. And what does that mean? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Friends, do not buy the lie that love pursues sexual activity outside of marriage or that such activity can somehow be satisfying or fulfilling when it's separated from a covenant commitment before God and each other. Don't trust a world that has set its entire existence up in opposition to the good and gracious way of God. It's lying to you. Let's guard ourselves and guard one another because love is pure. So love is patient. Love is pure. Love protects. And Naomi wants to protect Ruth from a life of widowhood. She says, would not be good for me to seek your well-being. Ruth wants to protect Naomi from family annihilation and from a lost identity. Boaz wants to protect Ruth. He wants to protect her reputation. He wants to protect her physical safety. He wants to protect her future. That's what love does. Love protects the people around us physically and spiritually. Love sacrificially seeks the good of others. God loves us enough to send people into our lives who are going to speak the truth to one another. My dear friends, I'm going to brag on him uh, from when I was in seminary. He was my prayer partner. We would go running. God used him so many times to call me on my stuff. it flowed out of an abundance of love. He cared for me. We prayed together. We we talked. We ran, got breakfast. I, I interned at the church that he was serving at. I saw this man working out his kindness. And so when he came to me and said, Gordon, what's been going on in your thoughts of late? It wasn't judicial. It wasn't judging. It wasn't condemning. He was helping me keep my love pure. He was helping me walk within the bounds that God had provided. He was calling on me to trust in God. The number of times that my wife has helped me see sin in my life and graciously called me into obedience to Christ is a wonderful gift of God. Friends, when Galatians 6 tells us we should bear one another's burdens in love, it's talking about this kind of careful protection. We won't love one another well if we let one another drift away from intimacy with Jesus. Love protects. Fourth, love provides. Boaz sends Ruth away with grain and a promise. That's a picture of how love does not send others away empty. Now, God is the ultimate provider. We call him Jehovah Jireh. But we also know that he has graciously designed the relationships in our homes, our churches, and our families to show his provision. That's how he works his provision out amongst us. We need each other. Friends, we are around people all the time who are walking through hard times. Just as your pastor, I know a number of you are walking through really hard times right now. I couldn't walk through our group without passing several people that are going through some really hard times right now. We need people who will take their eyes off of themselves and see those around them who are in need of help. And God be praised, this congregation is so good at that. (laughs) We are so, so wonderfully blessed to live among such loving people who regularly portray the chesed of God who are constantly showing kindness to one another. May that increase. But friends, if love provides, then couples, what's your game plan? How have you devised to provide spiritually for your wife? How are you praying with her? How are you praying for her? How are you, as Ephesians would say, watering her with the water of God's word? Parents, what are you planning to provide for your children's spiritual well-being? Are you leading them in worship? Do you lead them in scripture? Do you teach them to see the fingerprints of God in the world? It isn't on you. You can't give your faith to them, much as we might wish that we could but we live in a world that says that what our spouses our children and friends need most is more pleasures more possessions more education more experiences sports etc and so we immerse our family in these things and these things in and of themselves are fine they're good things but if that's what we've led our families to seek as the ultimate or to be ultimately satisfied by then we and they will be empty in eternity. Jesus straight up warns us in Matthew 6. Don't heap up treasures where moth and rust decay and where thieves break in and steal. Love provides for and points us toward what matters most. The ultimate goal of parenting is not for our children to have a great education, however good that is or a great career, however much of a blessing that might be. The ultimate goal of parenting is to help our children to love, serve, and glorify the one true God. The last aspect we'll draw out is that love pays a price. Let's just acknowledge there are risks all over this chapter. (laughs) Naomi concocts a risky plan. Ruth carries out. A risky plan. Boaz risks a lot taking a Moabite for a wife. And as we will see, it will cost Boaz an enormous sum to redeem the property of Elimelech. But love risks. Love pays a price. And friends, we live in a world where people are more concerned with whether they are liable than whether what they are doing is right. where they're more concerned with not suffering personal loss than with living a godly life. But true Christian love is willing to pay the cost of redemption because true love cares for and sacrificially seeks the good of others. That's why Jesus will say in John 15, a friend lays down his life. It is perhaps needless to say that behind this small picture of love, however big you think the picture of love is in the book of Ruth, it is small in comparison to God's glorious sacrifice at enormous cost. He takes our sins in his own body and he absorbs the wrath that we deserved. You can look at this when Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, and I forgot to include this in the overhead just before this, is out of God's kindness. So if you're looking in the context, you'll see that it's right there. It says, out of his kindness, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration means we were born again, and renewal of the Holy Spirit made us a new creation, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. (coughs) At some point this week, friends, I encourage you to look at this list of characteristics. These marks of love maybe write out and pray through one or two ways that you might be able to grow in your love for others and for God. And if you're feeling downtrodden, you should also, and practically everyone should do this, you should also write down at least one way in which you see the love of God worked out towards you. And give him thanks. Praise God for all the love that he has given and grown in us. My family regularly feels having, you know, many of you will ask sometimes, How are you doing? You feel more at home now. And it's just good to be in a body of loving brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. You have shown more kindness to us than we deserved. Love is the chief virtue of the Christian life. And so we can always long to be more filled, more controlled, and more characterized by it. We're a loving congregation, but there's always more kindness. It won't be easy. Living in a loving way involves sacrifice, but friends, true love is a strange thing that makes you do strange, otherworldly things because ultimately, true love sacrificially seeks the good of others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that in this wonderful gift of the story of Ruth, that we see a picture of your Son. Thank you, God, that out of your mercy and kindness, and not for anything in us, that you sought us out for your own glory and for our eternal good. Thank you for lavishing on us your grace in and through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that those who have forgotten the taste of that sweet kindness, would remember it this morning, would remember themselves, children of the great King, whose inheritance is unfathomable and whose kindness they have experienced richly. Father, if there is someone here who has not known your good kindness, then I pray this morning they might taste it in your word, that they would find a soul who can share with them the goodness that you are you have already done for them and made available to them in the cross of Jesus Christ, and that they would cast themselves, heart and soul, upon your kindness instead of seeking out more and more possessions or more and more experiences or more and more things, that they would find the purity of your love to be the true satisfaction of their heart. And Father, ultimately what we ask is that you would work out in us to one another an ever-increasing display of this pure, kind, good, wonderful love, this loving kindness that sacrificially seeks the good of others because of all that you've done for us. Father, make us a loving body, a loving family whose greatest joy, whose core identity is Jesus Christ, and we ask it in his precious name, amen. Amen.